and welcome to Broad Expressions. I'm Becky Doubleday. In March 2020, states began taking sweeping measures to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. Illinois was no different, and that in turn had huge impacts for central Illinois. Locally, one of the major players on the front lines fighting the pandemic was Monica Hendrickson, public health administrator for the Peoria City County Health Department. Her leadership in the fight and her consistent, forthright communication with the public about the status of the pandemic were major factors in helping us weather a very tough storm. Monica is an epidemiologist by trade with degrees in molecular and cellular biology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and epidemiology from the University of Michigan. She has been a public health administrator with the Peoria City County Health Department since 2017. Monica, welcome to Broad Expressions. Thank you for having me. So the role of public health obviously has gained a lot of attention since the pandemic. Is it now uh, back to business as usual or is the role of public health fundamentally changing or changed? So that's a really interesting question. I think fundamentally the role of public health has stayed slightly the same uh, in terms of what we focus on, what we look at in terms of creating that healthy community. I think what has changed is the public's perception and understanding of public health. You know, um, we always say that we are public safety, first and foremost. We don't have any sirens on our cars. Um, but similar to other kind of public safety uh, agencies, when things are working great, people tend to not notice us. And then when something happens, especially in the time that we live in, people not only notice us, but then you know start really trying to understand what this type of field is that has been there for eons, really, um, and how it impacts them. So I think it's really the public's understanding of what the health department and public health does has fundamentally changed. Yeah, it seems that recently, and, and again, I don't know if it's because I'm just becoming more aware of it or because the conversation's changing, or it's been there the whole the whole time, and I just haven't been paying attention. Is um, all of the different factors that go into public health? You think of public health, or maybe we did pre-pandemic, like this is where you can go to get a flu shot. Um, but now you're hearing about uh, food insecurity. You're you're hearing uh, about poverty. All of these where you live in a geographic region. All of these different things. Um, have those always been there and we just haven't been paying attention? Yes, I, I think those have always been part of the public health dialogue. And similar to other fields, public health has is on a spectrum. You have academic, you have private, non-for-profits, and you have government, of course, which includes state, national, and your local health departments or municipalities. And so the field is very broad, but at the heart of it, the core of public health is how do you um, investigate, monitor, and control for illness and disease. And when you start looking at investigating and controlling for disease, you have to look at all these different risk factors. It could be something as exposure, your age, your gender, uh, your, your career, your employment, but also what we call these social determinants, your housing security, access to nutritious food, ability to do physical activity. All of those start playing a role so while the field of public health has always been monitoring these larger determinants of health, um, and you can also call them social determinants of economics, social determinants of education, but 
it's always kind of been there, but I think again, that lens that COVID-19 brought where we saw why one group was getting exposed and getting sicker than others. All of that kind of plays in bringing it into the kitchen table, these discussions around inequity. And how is that evolving uh, now? Is, are the, is the programming changing at all or just the conversation kind of thing? Are you still, are you doing anything differently now coming out of it with the heightened awareness? So we've always, especially at the Peoria City County Health Department, we've always had that lens of equity and making sure that we kind of integrate when we do programming or planning or interventions that we ask ourselves, you know, who is the highest risk? What is the challenges and barriers and gaps that are preventing an individual from receiving that optimum level of care? I think what's changed, though, is, um, again, public health prior to COVID has been quietly working. And sadly, um, when you're quiet and working, you tend to get underfunded over years. You know, prevention is, um, while a lot cheaper than um, dealing with an issue, it's the first thing that gets cut in different budgets, especially state and local government budgets. And so what ends up happening is, I think now we're at a place where globally, um, we saw how these inequities matter when you're talking about health outcomes. So now we're actually starting to see funding um, specifically to work in developing plans and kind of um, policies to review inequities. But also at the same time, you're having this conversation now across different sectors. So all of a sudden you're having transportation funding talk about inequities, right? You're starting to have education and uh, housing all start talking about what inequities are you addressing. So now I think what's exciting um, is that this conversation is becoming broader and being interconnected with other sectors, which of course help build that large, comprehensive, healthy community that we all want and need. So how does that, um, it sounds like you're obviously a very well-educated epidemiologist, (laughs) right? Sure. (laughs) Right, right? and a public health administrator, but you're also now looking at all these other factors. Was that, was that, um, was that part of your studies when you were becoming an epidemiologist of, you know, looking at these other factors like poverty and geography and those kinds of things? Or is it more you know, on the scientific kind of side of things? So luckily, when I um, was at Michigan for my master's in public health, I really focused on social epidemiology, which really did look at not just the risk factors of like behaviors. Oftentimes, we think about epidemiologists looking like, if you smoke, What's your incidence of lung cancer, right? (laughs) Things of that nature. Um, But I got to do social epidemiology, which really focused on those large determinants, such as housing, access to services, infrastructure. Um, So that was something I was interested in. Now, I got towards that path because of my upbringing. And it's largely due to my parents, um, especially my father, who, when he immigrated to the United States, really instilled on my sister and I this fact that, you know, you know, the U.S. is not only a land of opportunity, but it's a land where these opportunities filter into your long-term success and health of your life, right? Where you have, you can, I always thought he was the most excited was when he would turn on a faucet and look, say, look, clean drinking water. Like, be grateful for that. Like, recognize that we have an infrastructure in this country. Now, 
Is it tasty at times? Is it hard? Is it soft? We all have those debates. But the fact of the matter is, for the most part, you can turn on a faucet and drink water and have access to something like that, or go and check out a book at a public library. Uh, all of those things that he kind of just discussed with us and kind of built up this idea that my life or my family's life would be a lot different if we lived someplace else just based on the fact that we have these determinants of health available. Yeah, that's amazing to have had those conversations within within your family. Did you, the, I understand, did you travel, did you live in different places as a child too? And, and the, did that impact at all as well? Did you find, uh, I mean, we, we, do, we do have drinking water, obviously, yeah. typically, uh, and we've got a stable power grid, exactly. typically, in the, in the United States. But um, were, were there any determining factors in those moves that you made? I think, you know, part of moving a lot as a kid, um, and when I say a lot, you know, we moved maybe like seven times, three different states, oddly enough. Just, um, But I think what it teaches you is not necessarily the infrastructure of those aspects, but when you meet people, um, you have to be kind of be adaptable, you know, make new friends, new schools, uh, but you learn that everyone is essentially the same. Like anywhere you go, and when we traveled abroad, people want to make sure that their kids are healthy, right? That's the number one thing. Like I want my kid not to be sick. I want my family to be healthy and they want them to be happy. They want shelter and food. Like that's just a commonality across the board. And so I think part of moving and just traveling in general, you gain that perspective that we are 99.999% alike in terms of what we really want. Um, and that's what we really should be focused on. And that's kind of how I approach things, just looking at different people with different opinions, especially during COVID-19, we had a lot of people with different opinions, but just recognizing that essentially we're exactly the same. We just have to have a conversation about where we disagree on things. How do you, how do you manage that with the um, obviously some of the polarizing opinions um, and the you know it seems like it came down to you know my personal you know rights mm -hmm. versus that of of the public of the public good um, and and the science right um, I know you've spoken about that in the past too that. Um, it, as, as a scientist, that must have been, I don't know, an eye-opener that, that science was under attack. Yeah. So, you know, my perspective on it was twofold. I think taking the science one, because science essentially is seeking truth, right? And the entire, the actual true scientific process, not I did a Google search, right? But peer-reviewed data, um, that's where I kind of drew the line. Right, and I, lots of times you in the, in the intro you mentioned that I was consistent, <laughs> yeah. and part of it because I was just like it's science, like <laughs> right, yeah. right, it's fact, it's fact. Uh, I think so. That I kind of is where I kind of drew the line and just said, this is what the science is telling us. This is the research. This is the number of thousands of people that were involved in the study, and this is their outcomes. You can try to replicate it yourself if you want, or you can go to this other peer reviewed. Um, so always really dealing and trading in the fact that we're working with science. I think that's kind of what my level set. In terms of the opinions, I think it was, again, having those conversations with individuals. Sometimes there is definitely a population that no matter what you say to them, it's just not gonna happen. And 
I would say they are very much the minority, um, and yet platforms such as social media give them a, a you know, a, a horn to speak out, right, and multiply if need be. But the majority of people just didn't understand, and I had a great conversation um, with a community partner who said, you know, you are a molecular bi- cellular biologist, and then you went and did your master's in public health. I said, yeah. And they're like, you've had the luxury of taking science for from you know kindergarten all the way into your 20s. I was like, yeah. And he's like, most people don't. After high school, mm. like their intro to bio, intro to chem, that's it. Their science career is done. That's a great observation. And so part of it is kind of recalling with them. So oftentimes, you know, when we're trying to sh- explain to them how the science came about, it wasn't talking about the actual scientific paper in front of you, but going back to the way this research is done is remember when you were younger and everyone got a plant or a seed and part of your class had to put it in, water it once a day and put it in the sunlight. Another group watered it once a day, put it in the dark closet Another put it in the sunlight, did not water it, and then somebody did nothing, right? And then you guys had to compare as a group. And then the question was like, the next class over did the exact same thing. And then you compared with the other class. That's how science works. And they would kind of recall, oh yeah, we did this hypothesis training and all that, right? Right. But they might not know it as hypothesis training. (laughs) So that's kind of how the conversation starts coming in, that you really bring them in and understand where they're coming from. But I agree, there is a group that, as difficult and challenging as it is, they just don't want to hear it. And it's not because they're actually seeking truth. They're actually seeking a um, platform for their own attention. And then you just kind of have to accept that that group exists and focus on the individuals that you can. Well, um, as I said, you were a, a steadying, calming voice and it what was nice too in the consistency of it is when at that time too we were hearing from Dr. Ezeke at the state level and then you know we were hearing the same thing at a local level too so that gave you know when when everyone was kind of trying to figure it out you know and figuring out what it, how it was impacting their individual lives that at least you could you know you could say okay I see the pattern there and and I can I might not like it but but I can understand it yeah we had a a great communication team it was um, between our own health department Diana Scott there was uh, Gretchen Pearsall from the county and then um, Stacey Peterson from the city they just like this amazing coordinated effort so whenever we had a press briefing oftentimes there's an elected official and then a local subject matter, one of our hospital systems. So the public could see when they were talking about hospital beds, it wasn't some Chicagoland. It was right here in central Illinois. Yeah, and I think that I think that really was impactful and to and to see that and I, I often noticed that too because we would we would watch the, the press conferences. And um, but you know there you were, you were on the front line. And that's, it, it's a different dynamic of being out there saying it and being the person supporting in the background. So uh, kudos to you. Did you have any, uh, were you trained on the communication side of this? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't apparent, but anyway, go on, explain no, I, that. I, it was, um, so we, someone asked me like, oh, 
did you, someone like, do you get trained on this? I was like, no, there was no class during grad school that says, hypothetically, you're going to go almost every day for an hour and answer questions <laughs> that are just thrown at you. Um, good luck. Like, there's no class on that. I will say what, two things that have impacted is when I was younger, I did do some, you know, like club activities at school. So you kind of right. get comfortable talking. But again, a shout out to Diana Scott, our public information and marketing at the health department. She does, she's kind of sneaky about it, but she does a thing where she will just say, You have oh, to be if you're a communicator yeah. <laughs> or nobody would ever go, yeah. and go out and do these things. So she'll be like, oh, somebody's looking for someone to talk about flu or you know, food inspections or something. And then she'd be like, and we'll just have you go do it. And so she would actually, she's secretly training all of the health department staff to do media. Uh, we just don't realize it until we're put in that spot and we're like, oh, that's, thank you, Diana, for training us. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And you know, like cutting your teeth on the flu shot announcement yes, exactly. as opposed to getting, to getting ready for a pandemic. Um, what were those early days like? Um, <laughs> just, I'll just leave it right there. What were they like? Um, it was it was really hard to describe at times. You know, it was very calm because it we had sent everyone home, and it was just myself at the health department and our emergency manager and our facilities individual. Early on, it was just quiet, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of just things getting thrown at you. So what I would know at you know first thing in the morning would maybe change by midday. And when I went to bed, it would be maybe something completely different. So you're gaining information almost out of a fire hose, just getting thrown at you and you have to process. And so, you know, I always get asked, you know, do you regret any decision you made? And I would say, no, I, I, I strongly feel that every decision I made in that point in time was the right decision. Now, hindsight, I'd look back and be like, oh, if we had known that, we might've changed this, but that's not the case. And so the early period was just, um, you know, trying to get staffing levels up. We didn't have a contact tracing program, trying to build that up and just trying to digest as much information as well as communicate back to all those different levels of stakeholders. Because we had our healthcare providers, you know, the hospitals asking information. We had our electives and policy decision makers. And then we had our agencies, our social service agencies, uh, our shelters. And then you had the, the person that was just calling that asked, you know, what do I do in this scenario? Um, and so you're just filtering information consistently. So in that sense, it was just chaos. I feel like you were just on adrenaline all the time. Um, but oddly, the actual physical area was just very eerily calm. So it was kind of the dichotomy you always experienced. That's that's really interesting. What are some of the uh, the processes, or how do you do things differently, or do you do things differently at the uh, in in terms of your job um, at the Peoria City County Health Department coming out of the pandemic um, and these things that you learned than maybe you did them before? I I think we. Um, I don't know if I necessarily do things differently, but I think we gained a lot of community partnerships through it. You know, groups that we may, may not have historically worked with, just because again, you know, pre-pandemic health departments there doing their thing and we don't really understand them. But then when we started partnering more because we needed to to get, you know, keep the community safe, 
those partnerships are so strong that now that we're out of it and we're dealing with other issues, whether it's um, planning for other infectious diseases, um, you know, gun violence, food insecurity, transportation, now our network of who we talk to is a lot larger, which is great. Um, and so I think that's part of how we changed our business opportunity is just we now have more support and more players to work with. And they now understand how health works. And so the collaboration is kind of like, oh, why, before it might have been like, why is the health department calling me? Now is like, yes, they are a partner in this type of work. Yeah, we all tend to work in our silos. Exactly. <laughs> but um, interesting that a, uh, a pandemic, a, a, a disaster happening in front of you would, would bring people together. And, and that's wonderful. And did, is that, do, do you see that as you talk to your peers, maybe in other communities? Is that the same thing that's happening in those communities? No. I, um, in fact, we just, a few of our staff just went to the American Public Health Association conference. It was like one of the first conferences we went to in a very long time. And it, we meet people from different states, even from Illinois. Um, and we talked about some of our experiences during COVID. And I have yet to meet a community or a public health administrator that had an experience like I had. And just to put it in perspective, um, you know, I'm not saying that it was a walk in the park for us at all, but you know, when the first people that called me and started the conversation and never really left our side but walked with us was our sheriff, Brian Asbell at the time, uh, our state's attorney was involved, our county chair, Andrew Rand at the time, had a great perspective. Our mayor was Mayor Artis. They all understood what was happening and they very much understood that the health department was taking lead and giving direction and they were supportive of it. Um, and you know, they questioned, they pushed us, we pushed them in a good way, in a collaborative way, not negative. And I think part of it is you have a community that has two large healthcare providers that are also the largest employers in the area. So by default, Peoria understands health, interestingly enough. Um, but I had neighboring counties as well as others, even the Chicagoland where you heard things such as, um, their county boards tried to shut down the health department completely, try to disband it. We had counties that were getting sued by local officials. Um, it was night and day, you know, where I, um, you know, when we would receive, uh, sadly, harassing information, I could call the sheriff and he would say, send it, don't open it, send it to me, right? Versus other communities that would say, tough luck. you." It's your own fault kind of deal. And so I count my blessings over and over again with experience because I do not think we would have been successful in Peoria um, or had the response if it wasn't for the fact that we have such a fantastic group of leaders here. And that partly was because we worked and knew each other before the pandemic started, right? It wasn't like the first time we met each other was around a table, be like, by the way, this is what a pandemic is, and nice to meet you, I'm Monica, right? It was, we had already started working with them prior. And I would, again, shout out to our emergency manager, Jason Marks, he would have us at these trainings that we'd all be like, why are we at these trainings? But part of it was we established those relationships. So it became a giant trust exercise and years of working together allowed us to really move forward quickly. That's... Yeah. That's amazing, and that's 
you know, these are the silver linings, yeah. right, um, that come out of these things. And uh, I can only imagine that that would be such a help moving forward with any of these. This isn't the last kind of thing that we're going to experience. Hopefully in our lifetimes <laughs> it won't be this, but um, are, are there things that you're preparing for? Um, I mean, if, if you were paying attention, <laughs> I guess, before the pandemic, there were these uh, there were these random kind of off in the distance news stories about uh, this could happen. Uh, we think that this is something like this might be imminent. Um, are we are we paying attention to those those far off signals now that are going to become possibly very loud? So, in terms of like an infectious disease or a communicable disease, we we've done this for a while. In fact. Um, Post uh, 9-11, I, I don't know if you guys remember, there was like a giant anthrax scare. Yes. Yeah. And so... Being what, mailed, wasn't, wasn't yeah, it something it in the... Po to media. It was yes, like to, right. Yeah. But coming through like in a letter or something like that or something. Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. So after that, the thought process was, if we had something like this, a bioterrorism, how do we respond? And it was okay, health departments need to be able to get medication to people within 48 hours. That was like the, the so they started funding grants and programs. It was our emergency preparedness program. And over time, it kind of grew to, okay, what happens when we have a novel avian influenza? Mm -hmm. And then- Like SARS. SARS, was exactly. the first, right? Kind yeah. of like you started hearing about that. Or H1N1, which yes. is how my career started. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you would, you would hear these and you would start planning and responding to these. And it was exercises and training and kind of those what-if scenarios. And that's how we built our emergency preparedness program. So when uh, we had, I remember it was our first meeting and we had all of our stakeholders around the table and they all came, which was, again, that trust. But we weren't going to a giant white, dry erase board and trying to draw out what we're doing. We all had our plans and we passed down and we said, this is the structure of our response because we had already trained and recognized how it would work. And so- Easier to edit than create. Exactly. <laughs> so our emergency manager, he hosted, at first it was almost daily or every other day. Now it's it was week, weekly and then it becomes as needed, but he would host these calls and we would walk through and, and it was, you know, one group were the doers, the other were the planners, right? So one would say, I need this. Then the ops side would say, we can get you this. You know, so right. it worked and we just, we had it all laid out. It wasn't perfect, but we had the frame of the house, right? And so I think, you know, when we talk about the horizon, right, what's coming down, um, we're always watching things. I mean, that's part of public health is surveillance. And so we do monitor, we, we monitor for Ebola, we monitor for, um, other influenzas that might be coming and changing. But I think that monitoring, what it do, only what its key thing does is we take kind of what the potential challenges are and then go back to that framework and say, what would we edit on this framework from a planning standpoint to actually address that? But I will say the biggest thing that we are monitoring right now is not an infectious agent. It's actually our own staff. Between the healthcare staff, healthcare community, and public health, the past few years has just been a lot, right? So we see a yeah. lot of um, people leaving the field completely. We know nurses, wow. 
it's really hard to hire a nurse right now, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of retirements, a lot of just transition. At the same time, we know there's a batch of people that are now interested in public health <laughs> right? for the first time in a long time. But that's really challenging is that we're, we're kind of, um, almost we're losing that technical expertise and, and that skill set just because it's just a lot and people are just leaving the field. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even Dr. Fauci retired. I know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, who would, you know, you're like, doctor, he's just there all the time. He's retiring. So, but yeah, I mean, I think everybody should, yeah, think about that in terms of your own life or your own jobs and that feeling of of burnout after and then multiply it by how when you're on the front lines of it all the time. I'm, I'm still guessing, though, that you would encourage people uh, and uh, young women to go into <laughs> epidemiology. Yes. Um, um, are you uh, any regrets about the career path that you chose? No, I. Um, it's I, I no regrets at all. I think it's one of those um, things that, if jokingly, I have a mentor and I had was talking to him because we're also right now gearing up to get a new health department. We're part of a new rebuild that the county is doing. And I spoke to him. I said, you know, I've only been in my job for about five years. And he's like, yeah. I was like, and we've had a pandemic and a mass vaccination campaign. And we're going to get a new building. And you do the same things of like restructure, reorg, which has happened. He's like, yeah. Like, yeah, you've had multiple careers of a public health administrator in five years. Um, right. But still, I would never regret it. I think the only regret I have during the entire COVID experience, and I've shared this a few times, is, um, you know, it's, I have young children. So when the pandemic first started, my youngest was, when they, everyone was sent home, was in preschool. Wow. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah! <laughs> wow. Okay, that puts a lot of things in perspective, perspective too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, and my family fully understood it because my kids understood it. But you know, when you put your for so many years, I was just putting the community first, the community first. So my mm-hmm. kids understood, it, and I have a great support network. Um, but no matter how much they, I know, are very proud of me and understanding and completely, you know, accepting of everything that happened, I myself, I'm like. Oh, if I had maybe just left work a few times earlier, I could have caught them before they went to bed and, you know, things of that. But right. um, that's the only, I guess, regret I would have. Otherwise, no, I have no regrets in choosing public health. I think that it is amazing that someone who uh, was not born and raised in this area is so committed to the Peoria community. How long have you lived in uh, this area? Since 2009. Since 2009, okay. Yeah. So pri- you uh, were here prior to coming to the Peoria City County Health Department, but. Yeah, yeah. actually my first job um, out of grad school was um, in public health was here at Peoria City County Health Department. I was here for about a, a year and a half of which H1N1 was part of my job to plan vaccine clinics. Wow. And then I, um, I left to go to Knox County for about three years and then I came back in 2013 because uh, they were looking for an epidemiologist. And I was like, sign me, up. sign me up. <laughs> and then uh, that was in 2013. And I want to say four years later, I became the administrator. That's, uh, well, that's wonderful. And 
We're so lucky to have you here oh, in central you. in central Illinois. Monica Hendrickson, thanks so much for being here. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Broad Expressions. The show is a co-production between me, Becky Doubleday, and WCBU. It's recorded at WCBU's studios on the campus of Bradley University in Peoria. Our theme music comes from Peoria's Emily the Band. The show is edited by Mike Sable. You can find more episodes of Broad Expressions or subscribe to this podcast at wcbu.org slash broad.